Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the star line by a reformed comedian now monitoring weather phenomenon around the U.S. as a weather channel meteorologist, Tom Borick. Welcome, brother. Oh, Sean, I appreciate being on the show. Let's go beyond the mic. Before you left the big reds of Chippewa Valley High School, was meteorology your first love? It was baseball. And you notice that baseball and meteorology play a lot in hand-to-hand. If you're not playing baseball, it's probably because the weather isn't right for it. Since I'm all of 5'10", that baseball career didn't exactly take over. And then the weather career, I've always been fascinated with weather, especially hurricanes, which is funny since I grew up in Michigan. That was my next step. So I guess I had to do that. Now, what position did you play? I was catcher. I loved it. A lot of control in the game. Got to be a part of every pitch of the game, whether or not the ball made it to my mid or not is another story, but I love that position. Now, as a member of the Wynadot Middle School Wall of Fame, you excelled in three sports other than baseball. What was the other two? Well, that was be basketball and football. Which is so funny you found that. That's like the, but that was probably the highlight of my, my sporting career. I think I reached peak right in that uh, middle school time because I think I reached my current 5'10 height right about middle school. Then I just, I plateaued after that. But yeah, played, <laughs> I, it was amazing because if you watch my basketball career, I started off as a center in middle school. And then by the time I got my uh, senior year of high school, I went from center to like the, uh, the power forward four position to a three. And then by the time I hit senior year, I was just coming in off the bench to follow the best player on the other team. And, <laughs> and I would do it on purpose because I wanted stats. Otherwise the only stats you'll see would be zero, 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 two. And that two would be the minutes played. I'm like, I want, I want something else. So I followed. Now being a reformed comedian, you gave it up to be a serious weatherman also for the family. What do you miss about being a comedian? You know what? It was funny that you don't see doing weather is that the instant you connect with an audience or you don't connect. And it was so, it's amazing how when you're on stage, and you have jokes that worked or for oftentimes didn't work, but you can have the audience was like, a, was a, like an ocean. It was a wave as a living thing. And each time was different. I can have a night that everything seemed to work. The timing worked. The jokes were working. I played off the people in the audience and it was a great night. I can do that exact same set the next night and nothing happened. And you had to get your way through it. And it was so amazing to get through that and realize that once you can get through that, you can get through so many other things. It's a very humbling experience, but it was still fun because you still had to go on. I still remember a day that we were part of a large uh, group that was, that basically would you go to comedy clubs and you basically had to rent the comedy club out yourself. The club takes the money. So you put $250 up out front. The club takes that money and then you fill the seats and whatever that they make above $250, that comes to us. And so a lot of times we didn't make a lot because, well, they didn't really sell the club. And a buddy and I went to do, uh, we emceed, we were living in uh, Los Angeles area at the time, and we emceed for University of uh, California, Santa Barbara. I had, at the time, I had dated uh, someone who was still, she was a senior in college. I was just a couple years after uh, college. I left college. And she's like, oh, man, you got to come and uh, MC for our, our talent show, our for sororities and fraternities. And I brought my buddy there. We could not have been so wrong for the MCs. And every time we went up in between sets, we tried jokes, nothing worked. And yet for two and a half hours, we had to keep doing it. And at the end of it, we still talk, Brian and I still talk about it to this day. That was one of our favorite days doing comedy 
because we still had to do it. They still hated us. It's like being the Detroit Lions and you know you're never going to go to the Super Bowl and yet you still have to show up every Sunday and play even though you know it's not going to end well. And that was, I, it, it was so fascinating even though it was so horribly bad. Now, if that was the worst set you did, what was the best place? I mean, there's got to be a good place that you actually got to play. Uh, at the Improv in, that was, uh, in Studio City in uh, Los Angeles. And it was one of those, again, one of those days where when you start off, you have to find people. You have to find classes. You have to do something. And so I got my way into this stand-up comedy course, this class, hosted by Judy Carter, who had done stand-up comedy for years back in the 80s and 90s. Through her, you, you honed in on things. You got to meet people. And then from there, we went out and just started doing stand-up. And so one of the times, we were able to get the improv. And of course, the improv is all the major people hit there. Now, mind you, we're not major. So the major, the Bob Saggots at the time, who would always go there, they would get the Friday and Saturday nights. Not only Saturday nights, they would get it at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, when it would be packed. We got Tuesday evening at 7 o'clock. That was our time. No one was there. You get a few people filtering in. But it was fun because that was the time where everything worked for me. The jokes worked. And at that time, you know, Bob Sackett walked in. Now, granted, he was busy talking to his own people, but it was amazing to be on the same stage as someone who was so good and who was so funny. And I got done with my set. I sat down and uh, someone bought me a drink, just said, hey, that was good. And I that felt good. It was just one of those things where I didn't need that one way or the other, but I did the best I can. The jokes work. And I always wanted to do that. And it was, for me, it was a check. I, I wasn't going to get a sitcom. I wasn't going to go anywhere from that, but I always want to try stand up. And once you get done doing that, messing up on air doing uh, television weather, you don't feel the pain as much. You don't, I mean, you still want to do well, but it's something different when you hear crickets, <laughs> when you try and do a joke for 10, 15, 20 minutes on stage much more different feeling we're talking to the wanted middle school wall of fame certified broadcast meteorologist <laughs> todd bork beyond the mic finish this sentence the most misunderstood concept of my job is oh getting the forecast right in terms of perception all the time the, the biggest joke and this is even a joke i use sparingly but we hear it all the time is from viewers or from listeners Boy, it'd be great to have that job. You can be wrong all the time and still have your job the next day. And if you look at the weather forecast, deep down, and we're talking weather forecasts from weather.gov, from your local meteorologists that you watch or listen to on TV or radio or to people at the Weather Channel, AccuWeather, wherever. For the most part, these forecasts do a really good job in the 12 to 24-hour time period. The success rate is easily 95 to 98% correct all the time. Whether it is the high temperature, usually give and take within three degrees. So if you say 75 degrees for high today, 95 to 98% of times you will be somewhere between that 75, 76, 77, or 73, 74, 75 temperature. It'll be right. But yet it's not those days that we are right. It's a day that you miss the forecast. It's a day that you are calling for rain all day and for two inches of rain to fall and the sunshine breaks out, dry air filters into this system and you don't get that and it doesn't pan out. It doesn't happen a lot when you're that wrong, but when you're that wrong, that is where people remember, oh, they just, they always remember the times you're wrong and they always bring it back up as if it happens all the time. And for the most part, the forecasts do a pretty good job. It just, it's going to be wrong somewhere. And those people who have it wrong are going to remember it for how wrong we are. 
Okay, you got the American model, the European model, the throw it at the wall and see if it sticks model, the color by numbers meteorological model. How frustrating when <laughs> yeah. only one of these models is going to be right. And that's it, though, because they're never always right. It's almost as if you're taking a cake, okay? So let's say that every one of us want to make a cake. You have the ingredients. You have your eggs. You have your flour. You have your whether or not you're using some type of cake mix. You have all the same ingredients, but you add a few other things to it. So the European model brings in some ingredients, but then they tweak it. Maybe they're using three eggs as opposed to two. Maybe they're using a vanilla cake mix as opposed to yellow cake mix, whatever. So while all the information is coming in, each model uses something a little bit different. They are applying different analysis in there. And there's always a thing with any type of modeling, whether or not you are modeling for the weather, whether or not you're modeling for COVID-19, because if you notice with the models there, they're all over the place. Junk in equals junk out, meaning that all the information you come in and whatever that model spits out, if there was a flaw and there will always be flaws going in, there will be a flaw coming back out at the other end because it's human. And so the American model looks at the same storm, but looks at different things, weighs different things differently. European model does the same thing. And they are good at some things. They're bad at some things. The European model tends to be a lot better with Atlantic Basin, hurricane, and tropical storm systems. Knowing that in the past, we tend to lean a little bit more on the European, at least initially. But then what you got to do, though, too, is that you have to look at how not only the storm is now, but how did these models react in the past? Did yesterday, did Cristobal, uh, where did the European show where Cristobal would be right now, 24 hours ago, 12 hours ago? Where did the GFS show it will be? And then you start learning which model has it right or which model was closest to being right today. So you lean a little bit more on that model tomorrow. And it's just, a, it's always a work in progress. And it's a lot of times you take a little bit of both. That's why if you look at the forecast fan from the Tropical Storm Cristobal, you'll see it being widespread. And a lot of times they'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and try and find the middle ground in all these models and try and find which one, where does the models, these models tend to put the center the most. And we'll start uh, going with that direction. Okay, we'll put the model this way, knowing that it will and will often change. Now you believe in nurturing the future of your craft by talking with students about meteorology. What's the first question you always get asked? Uh, They always want to know what it is like to be on TV in the sense of like, what is the green screen behind us? Can you see all the graphics in front of you? Do you have a script? Those are all things that we get asked right away outside the whole weather part of it. And to answer that question, there is no script. Our graphics are the script. We put the graphics together ourselves, the maps you see behind us. We use the same software, but then we create our graphics with it. We create our own forecasts with it. We choose the numbers we're going to call for highs and lows. And then when it is on screen, we don't see behind us. What's behind us is a green screen. Although often on the Weather Channel, we really don't use a green screen anymore. They're actual monitors. But you could still see yourself straight ahead. So I can still look straight into the camera. And there is a the teleprompter. There's uh, That's how a lot of news anchors will read, whereas a, it is an ankled glass. And while it looks like I'm looking at the viewer, I'm actually looking at a picture of myself in front of this imaginary picture behind me. And after a few years, you can, after really a, a few days, you can practice and know where your hand's going to be. I, I always find it funny when we get kids, when I was working local TV, and I work at uh, the Fox Pavilion in Atlanta. And it's amazing how you get these group of kids coming in, and they're so amazed by the weather wall, and they're like, oh my gosh, how can you do that? And then literally within about two minutes, they can do it. 
and you're like, okay, well, you basically got my job. You you <laughs> you say what you see and you point to it. That's it. That is our job. <laughs> so ten percent of your work is the actual on-air presentation of your forecast. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Ninety percent, you're looking at graphics, data, recreating graphics. So, what's the one thing that took you the longest time to master in your craft? <laughs> it's so funny. It, it is the forecasting. It is the learning the nuances, not only of forecasting, but but you have to learn where you live. Because, for instance, I grew up in the Metro Detroit area, so we we have the Great Lakes, and any flow off the lakes. Regardless of what I know about high pressure and sinking air and the fact that you have uh, a lot of times that will push the clouds away and you have a lot of sunshine, as you do in Texas, you put a big fat area of high pressure over Texas, you're going to get sunny sky and hot conditions if it's in the middle of summer. That doesn't quite happen in Michigan if you get the right flow of air. You have a little bit of flow of air off Lake Michigan, Lake Huron, you can actually see some clouds that could come in from that. And so you have to learn about the you know about big scale things, but then you have to break it down based on where you live. And so currently living in Atlanta, it's amazing because there is a, the Appalachians reach, the, the extreme southern end of the Appalachians reach just down to the south and east of downtown Atlanta. And that actually creates a little bit of a funnel, if you want, for cold air. And there will be oftentimes that you can see a place like Macon in the middle of summer having a 90 degree day. And Atlanta, which is only about 80 miles north of Macon, being about 12 degrees colder because high pressure over New England is bringing in cold air and that funnels right down the spine of the Appalachians and that cold air sits right over Atlanta. And you have to learn those things. And so you're constantly learning about little tiny microclimates in each every area. And again, Texas is so fascinating because there are just so many microclimates in Texas from Houston to El Paso to Amarillo down South Padre. I mean, you're talking about almost every different type of climate just in one state alone. And so it's all, you're always learning that. The on-air craft you get used to after a while, but even then you get stuck in words and you have to learn not to say the same word all the time. You may, I, I had to work the ums out of my speech. That took a while. And also I had a speech impediment as a kid. So that, <laughs> thankfully I got that out of the way early on too. But if I'm not careful, it may come out. Why are you a meteorologist? I love I love science, and I love the presentation of it. I've always been fascinated with television and movies, but sports and science are my two big loves. And there's something about weather. There's something about the fact that it is always around. It is always the number one conversation. I don't care how different each and every person can be in the world. We're always affected by weather. If you're standing next to someone, you have no clue what their life was like before then, what their life will be like after then. But if you're standing next to them, you know what the weather is right now if you're standing outside with them. And you can both share that together. And that's, if anything, that could actually be the first common thread you may have with someone that's a complete stranger. And I've always just found that fascinating and that your day will change. Every great memory you have of your life, if it's outdoors or maybe even if it was indoors, you may remember what the weather was like leading into that or what it was like during that day. And it's just fun to talk about the stories of that. And I just, I love the whole dynamics of weather. I love the fact that as much as we know, we don't know anything about weather still. We are still so, the science is still so unknown to us, even though we have all this information 
it's still the weather. There's still things out there we don't quite understand about the atmosphere and the way the earth works and the way the sun radiates the earth and how that plays into everything. There's still so much to learn. And I just like the fact that I'd rather, you'd rather me be your meteorologist than your surgeon because you could come in with a sore throat. I may be taking out a, a, a kidney, Whoa! but as long as I'm wrong, exactly. But, that, but that's, that's like being a meteorologist. I can be that far off and yet, okay, you're still missing a kidney. That's bad, but I can be off here. And I want to find out why I'm so far off. And it would make sense. You, you never put out a forecast that is like, you throw it out there like, oh, this is going to be so bad. I cannot wait to blow this forecast. You want to get it right. But when you get it wrong, you're thinking, wow, what did I do wrong here and where do I learn? And it's nice to know that I can do that and try to use it for next time. And there's always going to be days like that. Todd Borg from the Weather Channel joins us beyond the mic. We've talked about the weather. We've talked about the past, but we haven't talked about your love of game shows or sports. Sports are coming, but let's get to your game show experience. You were on The Price is Right <laughs> with Bob Barker. Oh, that was now, great. Talk to us about that experience. Yeah, well, what I love about that experience is that you get, now you got to picture this too. This is Todd Boric, college, mid-90s. What was so big about the 90s? When you think of and really 90s had a big divergence in sense of what the styles and cultures were. I had, you're, you're talking from 902 and 0 to grunge. You had a big breakthrough when it comes to rap and when it comes to R&B. So you, a lot of musical tastes were going. I'm coming directly from the alternative rock world where I was into Echo and the Bunnymen. I was into The Cure. I was into uh, Husker Du. I liked all the old school nice. um, alternative rock. I got a lot of that uh, from my brother who's older than me. So, of course, you know, Iggy Pop. And uh, just so me, I had big old sideburns. I had a big old bushy goatee. And I'm wearing my Doc Martens, which I still wear, by the way. I had to get my uh, second pair, but uh, my first pair, those were five years old when I had them. I had shorts on, and I just, I mean, I literally was right from the world of grunge. And here I am. I, I went out to California with a bunch of friends for spring break. And you, in order to get the, uh, the prices right, if anyone hasn't been out there to do it, they do two tapings a day. But the first taping doesn't occur until about one in the afternoon. The second one's not until four but you have to arrive at four or five in the morning just to get in line because the line is so long and they only take about 300 people in for each showing. And even then you have busloads of people who will call ahead of time and say, Hey, we got the, this particular group, the YMCA from Santa Barbara, we're bringing 30 people. Well, then that's 30 people that's ahead of you in line, even though they may not be ahead of you now, they get ahead because they called ahead. So I got in there. I was the only one of my friends that showed up. So I was actually there by myself and got into the second showing which is 12 hours later after we waited. That's why the crowd is so crazy because we've been there for 12 hours and we're completely insane, but it was a blast. And for some dumb reason, I had a feeling I was going to get picked because I was the only person with big old bushy sideburns and a big old bushy goatee. And I was wearing Doc Martens. I'm looking, I'm like, I'm gonna, they're going to pick me just for that reason. And I got picked. So did you ever make it out of contestant row? Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I, and I was Unfortunate too, because I didn't get to come on down because since I was there so early, I missed the first showing, the first taping. So they taped the 445 taping and I was the seventh or eighth, eighth person in line. So as soon as they said, Todd Bork can't come on down, I literally stood up and took one step forward. And I was in contestants row. Like that was, I was the, those people that are actually right behind those in contestants row. So I pop up there and I'm on, and they show my quote friends who just happen to be two guys, the two brothers from Philadelphia behind me. I didn't know them. 
the day before, they kept showing them as if they were my friends throughout the course of the time I was on. I was the fifth person. They already did the first part of the show. So when I got up there, it was the fifth game that they were playing. And I overbid on whatever it was. I can't remember what it was. And then the sixth time up is basically the last game of the day. Uh, there were a pair of lamps. And what came out my mouth was $900. And as soon as I said that, I'm like, you idiot. And everyone else went way below me. And they happened to be like 925. And so I got up and I walked up on stage, shook Bob's hand, the pleasant guy. And everything else was just surreal. There was a Ford Contour that was sitting there. I played a game cover-up where you had they showed the Contour's uh, number. And I had to cover up each digit. So the first digit was a two. And I had to cover up with a one or three. And then the farther down you got in the number of the car, the more numbers I had to pick from. Just for the record, it was a $16,355,000 car. I missed the third digit. So I did not get the car. But that's good, though. It's good because you have to pay state tax and sales tax on the car. So you really get hit hard if you do win your prize. If there was a game show from the past that you would have loved to have been part of, what would it have been? Well, I was on the uh, the resurrection of Match Game. That was the Tom Bergeron version, which was actually some of the, the poorest version that came back. It was the late 90s version where they didn't have six celebrities. They had five. And so that was like, that was the one with like Nell Carter. It had um, uh, Vicki Lawrence. Uh, those were the, but they only had five of them. So I, was, I actually was on Match Game and I got to the end of that, which is fun. But I would have loved to have been on Match Game 76 or Match Game, old school Match Game with, of course, Gene Rayburn, Charles Nelson Riley, Brett Summers, uh, Betty White. I mean, that would, I would, when I was a little kid and I, and I saw replays of that show, Look how much fun that was. I, now, I didn't know how drunk they were out of their mind, but that was, that. I mean, to me, that was happiness. I'm growing up in a happy, look how happy it is. Look how great it is being an adult. Look how much fun they're having. Of course they're drunk, but I didn't know. And that's why I was such an, had such an optimistic childhood because I kept watching game shows and people were winning all the time. And it just felt, oh gosh, I, I, I just love that part of it. Everything seems so good. I would, I would live vicariously through the people who would win because they were so happy. That made me happy as a kid. Being a Michigan native, I've got to ask you about your fandom of the Detroit Lions. <laughs> what was so special about your first NFL football game? Well, just being a Lions fan itself, just it was special because they won. So that's that's it right then and there. It was actually a Monday night game. I went there with my mom. This is what I love about my family. If I had tickets, and every time I have tickets to a game, and I only have one ticket to bring a family member It'll be my mom. My mom, even though my dad's a huge sports fan too, but my mom is one that will watch the game. My dad gets too worried during games and it has a hard time watching them. So he'll go and watch a World War II movie as games are going on. So I went to a Monday night game with my mom, Lions against Vikings. And it was, you know, it was a shootout. It ended up 13 to 2. Lions won. And I just remember as a kid just how festive that scene. And Howard Cosell was there and they had a big sign because for some reason, I don't know why Detroit fans didn't like Howard Cosell. So there was a big anti-Howard Cosell sign on there. But I remember that game. I remember how much fun it seemed inside the Silverdome, how it felt so specially on that Monday night game. And then, you know, of course they won, which is a rarity for, for a Lions fan. We both love great sports moments. We've seen special games in person. Ah, best for me, Nolan Ryan's seventh no-hitter, no doubt about uh, it. Worst game, the drive. Oh, What's the yes. one special game that you were at that you will tell anyone about, good or bad? Uh, for, 
first of all, the the one game um, I was at Justin Verlander's no hitter, his first no hitter he pitched in 2007. And and as you know, when it comes to no hitters, you don't know. I mean, there's one thing to be, and I've been to ALCS championship games. I was in uh, 2012. I, I came up with a buddy to watch the Tigers. They beat the Yankees in game four. So I've watched the Tigers win the American League pennant in 2012. That was fascinating. That still does not match the magic of 2007. But I just happened to be back in Michigan that day, visit my folks, and my mom worked for a doctor's office. They had season tickets to all the Tiger games, and they just had a bunch of tickets there. She said, hey, do you want to go see the Tigers play the Mets on Sunday, or do you want to see them play the Brewers on Tuesday? And I looked ahead and uh, looked ahead to schedule. I saw the Verlanders pitching. I'm like, let's do Tuesday. That, you know, that would be a better game. Mind you, the Brewers were in first place that time anyway, but I liked, I liked having uh, Verlander. Just go there, and as that game was unfolding, like you were, like you were the Nolan Ryan. There's something magical that happens with that game as you're looking, thinking, "Wait a minute, he didn't give up any hits." And then from that point on, you don't go to the bathroom after the fourth inning. You don't. You say the same thing, going as if I have anything to do with anything that's going on in the field. But it became we became part of the team, even though we had nothing to do with it. So that's the game I absolutely remember easily by far. We're talking to the weekend ahead pirate Todd Borak. Now, how did your time at WSAZ TV <laughs> in Huntington, West Virginia, change the way you are today? Well, I, first of all, I got married from someone who uh, I met my wife in West Virginia, who just. WSAZ was interesting because they split their, they had two stations. They had one in Huntington and then Charleston's capital city. So a lot of news comes out of Charleston, obviously a lot of state news. So they put a little bureau in Charleston that would cover the news. So they actually had me housed in, I was the only one that did the weather out of Charleston. I happened to move there because I was let go from my previous job in Flint, Michigan, because my contract wasn't renewed because we had horrible ratings, which we had before I got there and we had it after I left. But apparently, in order for the new news, news director to come in, you make changes. I was the change. So I left, went to West Virginia because that was the only job that was offered to me. Within a year, I met this uh, producer who just happened to come in. Who did, She didn't even work for news. She just wanted uh, She had to go back home for uh, a couple of months to be with her uh, folks because she needed to get her feet back on the ground. We met, and we met in August. Oddly enough, Detroit Tigers, the day they beat the Yankees in 2006, and for the uh, ALDS, that was our first date. And my phone is blowing up as my wife and I are on the first date. And she's wondering, this guy is energetic. He is so, she went away from there going, man, he's fun. I don't know if I can handle him this much. He's way too energetic. Well, that's because the Tigers are being the Yankees. And I was getting all these text messages from my buddies. Oh my God, are you watching this? The Tigers are going to win. And I'm trying to text them back. The game is on the background while I'm making creme brulee because you got to bring your A game. You have to bring your A game. Oh, of course. And so I'm throwing everything in my arsenal on there. Two seam fastball, you know, four seamer. I'm throwing the cutter. I'm doing the, my best stuff I can with me, the game in the background, wanting to watch, but also wanting to talk to her. So basically try, and I'll be honest, out of all the places I've worked, and I will say this, and I still say this today, that was the best place as far as top to bottom management. That was the best place I worked. The way they put that, that entire place together and how they ran it was great. But yeah, I met my wife in West Virginia, so that's how that's what changed me. <laughs> you didn't even blink when I brought up the weekend ahead pirate reference from your past. That says something. <laughs> I 
Wait, you also know that. Why do I want to? It's it's kind of like the uh, the magician where you're like, hey, look at the sand over here. If you just pretend that you didn't hear it, you just pretend that yeah, the pirates. And that was fun too. They let me do a bunch of. You now that you mentioned, you watched it. You saw how (laughs) just completely idiotic it was. I had a blast doing it. I mean, seriously, they put that on the air. They allowed me to do that stuff. And I was doing, I was at the point where I wanted to just do weather. And they said, well, you know, we got these other things. We have all these big shows. We want every person, whether you're a reporter, whether or not you do meteorology, whether or not you're an anchor, we want you to have something special to do. So why don't you do some entertainment? And after a while, I was trying to do the most outrageously dumb things so they would tell me not to do it anymore. The pirate was was pretty close to. I mean, I don't know what worse, and I had some other really idiotic ones. But I'm thinking they keep putting this stuff on. I want to see how far I can push the envelope to see for them finally come back to me and say, "Why don't you stick to weather?" I always love to know about the people who mentor interesting people. Now, who has taken you under their wing, and who do you like to mentor? Let's see. Well, oddly enough, when I started, I started late in this business. I, I moved out to California. Because in Michigan, it's state law that you have to leave the state in order to do something with your life. So we, <laughs> I left, went to California because I always want to live there. When you're stuck in Michigan, you, you, you got to see what whether or not summer is more than one week long. So we, uh, I always loved California. So I moved out there. So I, I was out there for a couple of years before I got into the weather business. And so when I got back in the weather, I went back to Detroit and I interned there. And there was a chief meteorologist there named Chuck Gatica. Great guy. He was absolutely loved by um, Southeast Michigan. Just an overall good guy. And he was so good at just being a mentor. But they all were there. The guy, Tom Searles, who's now uh, chief meteorologist in the CBS affiliate in Orlando. Reynolds Wolf was actually on the Weather Channel. He he was one of the, he was a weekend meteorologist there. And what I loved is that every one of them, they didn't have to do anything. They could just let me, have me sit there, answer phones, do whatever. But they, each one of them sat down talk to me, let me get up on the wall, let me practice. And I came in, I was only supposed to go there three days a week for two hours at a time. I made it my job. I went there every day, Monday through Friday, sometimes nine to five, sometimes five to midnight, depending on the shift, because I wanted to learn and, and they never batted an eye. And for me, I, it's fun watching people come in at this stage in life where we have new meteorologists come in. I will never, ever, ever give them advice when they're not seeking it. But I've had a couple of people who, when I worked at CNN as a weather producer for a while, we had a, uh, one of the uh, one of the women who was working the tour. She was a geoscience major, but she ended up working on CNN tours, giving tours all around. But she really wanted to get into weather, so she came in and she asked a few questions. I said, "Hey, if you come in here every day, if you come in here after your shift, I'll gladly show you everything." And she did. And what I loved about it is that I showed her stuff, but it, it was up to her. I love watching. It was her initiative that took it. I didn't do anything. All I did was open the door. She came through it. And I love watching that. And so anyone that's willing to ask questions, I'm more than willing to answer because I had that very same thing. And there's a thing in the meteorology world, you do pay it forward. So you help the person that's asking you and you ask them to help the next person. And so that's what we're doing. The Weather Channel's Todd Bork joins us beyond the mic. If people follow you on social media, they know you're a cat foster parent. How did fostering that first calico Tiger Lily change Oh, no, Tiger Lily. That was, oh man, that was a story that um, at the time my wife was my fiance. She was, as, as a producer, she was listening to the scanners. And there's a scanner that someone had called into the police saying, hey, I saw someone throw a kitten down a storm drain. And Darcy heard that and said, oh, that's awful. So she actually went out 
to with the photographer to see what happened. They got there, and the police officer is there, and they were trying to put a. You, you know, you talk about the storm drains that are on the side of roads, so they're they're rectangular, somewhat long, maybe about you know two to three inches tall, but then you know about twelve inches wide. And sure enough, there's a kitten that was down there, and so they they took a a bag and they took a wire and they they put it down. They eventually got the, the kitten out. And she didn't know what to do with the kitten. So I had two cats of my own that I had gotten when I lived in California. We just went to the nearby shelter and got two kittens and they became my two cats. And so we brought Tiger Lily home, which much, if you ever have a male cat and you don't introduce kittens to cats very easily, if you, if you bring a new animal in and you don't keep them in separate rooms for a week and you have them smell each other's scent by rubbing a sock on one and sock on the other and exchanging them, you'll have a cat that may spray your couch, which I still have that couch. We are missing one cushion because of that. So we just, as soon as we took that kitten in and we, we took it as ours. And then about four weeks later, Tiger Lily died. Had uh, She had a bunch of complications and we didn't have the money to do it, but we kept bringing her in for doctor visits and, and eventually tried to get a surgery and it, it didn't work. And then from that point on, we wanted to help. And there's something about fostering that is we, we in fact we have two fosters right now and one we just adopted out and it's so wonderfully bittersweet i love knowing that you're taking an animal that may not have had a chance and you're giving it a chance and you're seeing the family it's going to and you just it's just i i love that feeling it's just it's so i mean getting goosebumps thinking about it it's it's, it's so wonderful to see an animal that is you know they're they're innocent they're not they it's not up to them to overproduce themselves. It's people who don't get their animals fixed or they dump them off. We just want to give them a chance. And so we found two feral kittens. We trapped the mother, got her fixed. And then uh, two of the kittens, we, uh, we've just been fostering for the last couple of weeks and going to be uh, handing one off to a neighbor friend of ours just uh, yesterday. And it, it felt so good giving that kitten away, knowing that she's going to live a good life. Since you're on TV so much now, who has better taste in clothes, you or your wife? Oh, my wife, which is really funny, though, because my wife just likes to dress very casually a lot, but she still looks better because it's her in it as opposed to me. Uh, I could throw on a suit, but at the end of the day, I still have that big glowing bald spot. I got my sideburns down to my chin and it's still me. She wears it better just because it's her. I'm fortunate enough for that. For me, I just, I got to watch out what I wear. It has to be pinstripe and it has to be dark color. Because anything lighter than that, I just, I honestly look like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Everything's just a little unproportioned. It doesn't look right. Time's running out, so it's time for the Rocky and Eight. Eight random questions answered with the first thing that comes to your mind. Our mutual friend, Christopher Gabriel, has requested and been given the chance <laughs> to have a question as part of the Rocky and Eight, so be warned. There is no pressure. What, what I love about this, Sean, I've been looking forward to this so much. And I, did, I did no research. I just, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what comes up because I'm almost afraid. So let's do it. Which mystery do you wish you knew the answer to? Oh, wow. That is a good one. I would love, wow. I guess to me, I would love the mystery of the universe in the sense of how vast is it? Can we, will we ever get to the point of how did it start? How, how does it end? And what is happening with the, I mean, there's so much with science. What is it? Where are we? Where are we in time? in the universe and what does it mean to be living here on earth and other let's be honest are there other things out there are there other 
beings other than living things. I mean, we could sit here and say yes or no, but there's no proof one way or the other. I'd love to know that. What's the one quirk about you that drives your wife absolutely nuts? Oh, I'm always optimistic. Doesn't mean I'm not realistic, and she knows that. But she always knows I look on the bright side of things, and it drives her crazy because there are some things that she doesn't understand why. And it doesn't mean that I'm naive, and I think that things can go bad. But I always feel like sometimes things will get better no matter where you are in a dip, that there are a brighter day, maybe tomorrow, maybe next year. But I'm always optimistic. Place you want to visit but haven't yet. I've always wanted Australia, and I was supposed to do that for my 40th birthday. And that didn't come to fruition. So I want to go to Sydney, want to go to Melbourne, want to see the Great Barrier Reef. Just always want to give that a try and have one night out in the the outback. And that'll happen someday. If you could have five minutes with any person, dead or alive, who would it be? Just thinking that, as a Detroit Tiger fan, and as a love for baseball, I have to go back to the one player who I never saw play live. And that would be Al Kaline. And I say that because if you, if you go back with baseball and you think yourself as a baseball fan, and I don't know how it was like for you, Sean, in terms of how you got into sports, but for me, it was just passed down family. Grandfather to father to me to all my aunts to my uncles. And Al Kaline was the one I always heard growing up until I had my 84 Tigers with Kurt Gibson, Jack Morris, Lance Parrish. But Kaline was the guy that always, he seemed to be the one, him and Willie Horton were the ones that kept Detroit. That was our team. That was our championship team that I had growing up, even though I didn't see them. But that was the team I always had to hear about until I had, of all teams, the USFL Michigan Panthers that gave me my first championship in 1982, which, if you want to count that or not, I'm not sure. But uh, to me, it's LK Line, Hall of Famer. Just want to pick his brain, particularly during that 80, uh, 68 season. And he was injured for the bulk of it. But he still came back and helped win the World Series for the uh, Detroit Tigers. Favorite movie character and quote from them. Oh my gosh, I love, oh my gosh. Uh, see, what's so funny about movies, I am horrible on quotes. My wife can watch a movie that I've watched a thousand times and quote a movie, I don't, I'm such a visual person. I love Memento. That was one of Christopher Nolan's, that was his first really big movie that he made, in, at least in Hollywood. And it's a movie about a man who suffers from short-term memory loss. And for the life of me, I can't remember any quote from that movie at this very moment, which is very ironic because it's about a guy who has short-term memory loss, so it would almost be perfect that that's why I say that. Uh, love that movie, love Lost in Translation, and yet that's another one. I can't, for the life of me, I cannot remember anything on the spot right now. I'll remember it once we hang up, but not right now. Favorite and least favorite ride at Walt Disney World. <laughs> that's great. Least favorite by far, the teacups. Anything that, anything that makes you want to vomit and you have no control over that. It's like, if I, I, I don't need to get myself to vomit, but the whole premise of the teacups, why? Why would you wait in line and do that? The teacups are absolutely, it is sadistic for the people who are on that with you and want to spin it. And I'm just not masochist enough. I hate the teacups. As far as the ride I love, I, you know, you, you can't go wrong with uh, the old school Space Mountain. I mean, it's just, uh, and I love Epcot by itself as Epcot, but as far as the ride itself, there's just something about Space Mountain that's just always been part of my past. And I was so afraid to be on it when I was a kid. When I finally went on it, I thought, it's really not a bad ride. The problem is you just can't see anything. No matter how hard you try, what's the one thing you can never do right? (laughs) The one one thing I can't get right, oh my goodness. 
Wow. I can now see it's funny because I can always just say the forecast and it's so easy. So easy to say that. I would say that I can't get people's names right, Chris. I can't get them right. Think about that, of course. Uh, no, I can't get, I'm seriously bad on names and that's why I called you Chris. It is a, uh, it, it's something where I can see somebody and I know who they are and I'm introduced to them. And at the end of the day, I still can't remember their name. I remember the stories. I remember everything about them, but the first thing you got to learn is their name. And I just, I seem to always get that wrong each and every time I meet people. I'm trying so hard to remember, but it's, it's names. And now it's got to be the Christopher Gabriel question. Todd, if you had to be a fan of any other team in the Big Ten other than Michigan State, which would it be? <laughs> that is so, so Christopher Gabriel. Of course he'll say that. Oh, my goodness. It is so, you know, I've always had a soft spot for, well, first of all, being a Michigan State fan, there will never, ever, ever, we can be invaded by a, uh, by a bunch of aliens from the Alpha Centauri system. And the University of Michigan could rise and be the only defense we have against them. And I'll take the, I'll, I'll take being conquered by the Alpha Centauri system. I will never root for University of Michigan. I can never let that happen. That's just how I'm bred. You know, I've always liked you kind of can't go wrong with Northwestern until they went to the Rose Bowl back in the nineties. And then they started getting a little bit cocky about themselves and you're thinking, okay, um, I, I'll go out of my way and just say Iowa. And I only say that because I love the wave they have. You, you can't, I mean, you got the children's hospital there and they wave. And for, for anything else, they're in the big 10 West. Most of the time they don't, them beating, uh, winning doesn't affect Michigan state. And the way of the kids with cancer. You, you can't go wrong with that. His favorite ride at Disney World is Space Mountain. Wants to know the secrets of the universe and is a long-suffering Detroit Lions fan. <laughs> From the Weather Channel, our friend Todd Borick, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, Sean, this has been a, I've been so looking forward to doing this. And thank you so much. This has really been a lot of fun. It's been nice to step out of top storm coverage and just everything to talk about this. I, I really, really do enjoy this, Chris. Thank you so much. That's okay, Tim. <laughs> I'm so bad on names. I'm so bad on names. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. 